Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. In this third episode describing a typical year in mid-century Bombay, Ella Manuel visits the Woody Point Clinic, where she hears about jannying, the old Yuletide tradition of visiting homes in disguise. She recounts the story of John Charles Roberts' seed potatoes and their connection with the Scots of Cape Breton. Complete with rough weather, it was autumn in the bay. The summer days passed all too quickly, and in early autumn I found myself in the position of the little squirrel who frittered away his summer and went hungry when the frost came. I had not bottled fish or greens or berries against winter, and it was only the frequent invitation to tea, the local evening meal, that kept me from starvation. So one day, when the weekly clinic was in session, I went to the nurse for some vitamin tablets. The clinic waiting room was narrow, with windows high in the walls, and when I arrived it was nearly full, women with small children getting their three-year needle, and babes in arms ready for their first-year one, several men, looking a bit sheepish in the preponderance of women, nursed bandaged fingers or stiff legs, young women in all manner of dress and coiffure, including enormous hair curlers. I found a seat beside a woman who looked vaguely familiar. "'And who be you?' she asked. I told her, adding, "'And who be you?' "'Well, I'm Bill's mother, you know, see, "'and you're the woman that lives all by yourself up in the graveyard.' I said I was indeed. "'Ma, you must be some brave. "'Me son was saying that when he was fixing our graves this spring, "'an old feller come by and asked him who lived in your house. "'And when Bill told him, he said, "'Wouldn't you afraid with all them dead people?' Bill told him, you wouldn't afraid of the dead people, twas the live sons of bitches scared you to pieces. Oh my, she finished, cuddling herself in her two arms, me stomach is that bad it hurts me to laugh. The door opened, and several more people squeezed themselves inside. She whispered, who's them? Well, I didn't know either, and another crowd tried to enter. Who's them? I shook my head and after a moment she began to laugh again, and almost in tears before she recovered enough breath, she said, "'Just come to me mind. We're like crowded jannies. We don't know who anyone is, and we're trying to guess. Only they haven't got false faces.' And off she went in hoots of laughter, bringing hands to her stomach again. When she had recovered sufficiently, I asked her had she been jannying these late years. "'Well, I suppose I have me made. "'I went last Christmas, and I'm going again if the lard spares me. "'I got dressed up in me poor husband's Sunday suit "'with a pillar to fill out me stomach. "'He was some big, me husband, gone this two year.' "'She sighed, and then continued brightly. "'I had a false face, too, a real Janny face, "'and I made whiskers just like them hippies, "'and we went everywhere, even to the minister's. "'We never danced in his house, of course. "'We only said a speech we'd all made up for that.' And, of course, he never knowed who we were. Some of us was dressed up in oil suits. Some had their low, long skirts. Mrs. Parsons, she was with us, had her mother's Sunday hat on, a big one with nasturtiums on it. Hardly nobody knew who we was. Well, anyhow, 
We went down to Ned's last thing, and of course they asked us would we have a drink of rum. We said we never drinked, and one old fellow who wasn't janning, oh, I know him, but of course he didn't know who I was, said, isn't you queer? You don't drink, so I suppose you don't pee either. My, wouldn't he be vexed with himself if he knowed he was using them words too? And another gust of laughter brought Hans to stomach again. Well, what's wrong with your stomach, I asked. Don't know me, dear. All I know is it's bad. Been like that all summer, and the doctor didn't seem to be able to do nothing with me. All them pills useless, I says, so I'm going back to sulfur and molasses next month. Maybe that'll fumigate me. Turning to her neighbor, with whom she had obviously more than a nodding acquaintance, she said, Blood still poor? Yes, me dear, no better for all them pills I took. I had three bottles, and they still says I got no blood. Well, what does she mean? I asked Bill's mother. Well, she said, looking me up and down, take someone like you. Now, I dare say you got two, three gallons of blood, but she only got a couple of quarts. While I was digesting that piece of medical information, a man beside me was explaining how he slipped on the muddy path, hit his back on the bridge steps, and believed he'd broken his kidney. All he hoped was the nurse wouldn't send him over to the hospital in Norris Point, for he'd rather die of a fractured kidney than be frightened to death by the big bullying nurse over there. The man with the bandaged hands said he'd squat his fingers in the truck door and they went fausty, so he wrapped them up and carried them to the doctor like a pound of sausages, I thought, and now they had to be unwrapped to see how they was getting on. When I finally reached the nurse and collected my vitamins, she, a delightfully pretty and smiling young woman from Manitoba, told me she wouldn't work anywhere else in the world but Bombay. Where, she asked me, could you find such a variety of obscure diseases and exotic accidents? They have bad stomachs from drinking boiled tea, eating salt beef and cabbage just before going to bed, swallowing tons of patent medicines or they have low blood or high blood, never middling, and they have livers and kidneys in places found in no other human being. At our local fair in Bombay this fall, I found a display of potatoes with a curious history. The man who grew and displayed them, Mr. John Charles Roberts of Sally's Cove, is almost 87. He's been married for 63 years, and he planted the potatoes the first year of his marriage. He told me he'd grown them ever since in the same piece of ground, and he's never had a rotten potato nor a piece of canker this size, measuring off the top joint of his middle finger. And while he was explaining this to me, along comes another Roberts, Ed. He looked at the potatoes, picked one up, and said, Well, 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 I haven't seen them for fifteen years. Well, I guess you know where they come from, John Charles said and they smiled at each other. And then he looked at me and said, "'Twas his grandfather, me uncle, who brought them here to the bay." And this is the story I was told. Now, you see, Ed's grandfather was Samuel Charles Roberts, son of John Roberts, a Devon man who was one of the very first settlers in Bombay in the early 1800s. Like his father, Samuel was a fisherman, who used to catch and cure herring Scotch-style, as well as making dried cod. Sometimes he could sell the herring to American buyers, other times he couldn't. It was a precarious business, and besides, too many people shared in the profits. 
So Samuel, one summer, got the idea that he would go abroad himself and find a market. Where could he go was limited by the size of his schooner. It was only 22 tons, and though fishermen had sailed to England in ships not much bigger, it really wasn't to be recommended if one could find a handier place to market one's catch. Now, in those days, there were a remarkable number of Nova Scotians around these parts, setting up fishing stations and building sawmills. They told Samuel that there were a good many Scotsmen up in Cape Breton, and Samuel thought that maybe if he could find them, they might relish a meal or two of his herring. So late in the fall, when the wood was cut and stored for the winter's fires, when the cod was dried and packed, and when the herring was all neatly laid, head to tail, in small barrels, Samuel gathered his crew of shermen, told them what he proposed, and loaded his schooner with all she could carry of their herring and cod. In December, with the wind tearing down from the gulch and the spray freezing on the riggings, the little ship bucked her way out of Bombay and set her bow southwest, down through the gulf towards Cape Breton. Samuel wasn't quite sure where exactly he was bound, but he finally made port inside the entrance to Brador Lake. They tied up at the wharf, and a few people came down to have a look at the strangers. They all appeared to be called Mac something or other, so Samuel told his crew they must be Catholics. Now, it's no credit to our ancestors that they were as bigoted a lot as they come, but remember that in those days religions were being fought albeit on a small scale, not only in Newfoundland, but in Cape Breton too. So Max, the Irish, boded no good for the Protestant son of a Devon man. Samuel reckoned that they wouldn't get rid of their herring here, so they better try somewhere else. But before they could cast off, along came a rather talkative character who set them right about the Max. Hell no, he said, there isn't a Catholic within fifty miles of this place. Didn't you see the Orangeman's lodge up on the hill? Samuel said that he and his crew were lodgemen too, so the local dignitaries came and invited the Newfoundlanders to a meeting. And then someone thought to ask what was in the barrels on the ship's deck. And when Samuel showed them the scotch-packed herring and said that he hoped to barter them for potatoes and vegetables, they were beside themselves with joy. One said, Ah, the good Lord looked down upon us this summer and favored us with the best crop of potatoes you ever saw. Don't you worry about potatoes. Well, next morning, just about daylight, Samuel looked out the porthole, and what he saw astonished him. Lines of men coming down the hill to the wharf, with horse and wagon, with wheelbarrows, with sacks on their backs, all converging on the schooner. Samuel knocked the heads out of the barrels and doled out the herring. A dozen to one for carrots, three dozen to someone else for cabbage, a barrel to another who brought a wagon full of vegetables. Samuel said that all the Cape Bretoners went home hugging their herring to their bosoms, and he sailed home to Bombay loaded with the best vegetables he'd ever seen. That was their first trip, but by no means their last, for a very satisfactory and mutually profitable trade went on for many years between the Bombay men and the Bredor Lake men. Now, out of the potatoes brought home on that first voyage, some were kept for seed, and they founded the line that John Charles Roberts had so carefully tended for 63 years, in the same piece of ground, without any rotten potatoes, without a bit of canker bigger than the top joint of his middle finger. I've eaten some, and I swear they taste better than any 
potato I've ever eaten. And if I'm spared, as they say in Bombay, I'm going to plant a bed of John Charles Roberts Bordeaux Lake potatoes next spring. We have had more than our share of rough weather this fall. Northerly wind, lop coming in from the bay, seas breaking on the far shore, and spray driving twenty feet up the cliffs. Gulls like snowflakes rising and dipping over the water, and sure sign of gales outside, the black-black gulls appear. A dirty, grey-green sea, white caps whipped to foam, rain beating slantwise, poplars bending stiffly, a driving mist over the sea's face blotting out the foreshore, the contours of the hills misty black. One blustery morning as I headed for the mail, I drove along the lower road to have a look at the beach. Murdoch came hurtling by as fast as a man can in hip rubbers, shouting, "'Got to get me dory!' and the next thing I saw three men thigh-deep in the swells pulling Murdoch's lovely little pink and green boat out of the water. She'd broken her mooring and was swamped. Coming in fast right on her tail was what looked like an enormous raft. "'That's part of the government wharf,' one shouted against the wind. "'Broke off last spring in the heist. God knows where it's been since.' And here it was, bearing down on the boys in the boat. "'Here,' I said, "'hitch your painter onto my car and I'll back her up.' Get out of that. Think you got a ten-ton truck? Even you couldn't do that with a Volkswagen. Meantime, the seas were coming in clear over the car, and the storm got worse. All the little draggers moved nervously around the harbor, looking for the best anchorage or just riding it out. Round and round they went in a stately saraband. Finally, the wind began to shift a bit and the sky to clear for half an hour, enough to see across the bay where the hills looked like old faded black-and-white photographs of themselves. Up the bay a heavy mist rose, and a blue smudge showed over the water and the hills, as if they had been washed with old-fashioned bluing. In the well of sky overhead the sun gleamed and set fire to the edges of the high, thin clouds. Up the road came a great chrome-yellow plough, pushing the clean white snow before it. The aspens are now turning pale gold, the larch still green, and the indescribable color of the tall grass in the field. Bombay lay black and still, dead calm, fog-shrouded, the springdale like a painted ship on a painted ocean. Not a sound, hardly moving, Gad's harbor light winking in the intense midnight darkness. Little boats scattered over the calm water, and then the tone of everything changed. The bay became sullen and sluggish, sky-leaden. Later it cleared again, and the sunset was glorious, with the cliffs surrounding Grossmorn quite red to purple, the water reflecting close to shore, and on this side pink, deep blue, and streaks of gold. A light on Birchy Head reminds me of Whistler's Nocturne in blue and silver, only silver here is the gold of carlites. A patch of daisies gleams in the darkness, and the air smells of salt. Now that November clouds fill the sky, the restless landscape enchants. Sunsets are like tongues of flame coming up behind the hills on the lower side of the gulch. The almost full silver moon rises long before the sun's light is gone. It shines on the black water, particularly when it catches a tide rip or on a calm spot, and the beams are like millions of glowworms swarming. Coming up the hill, the moon shining on the frosty snow made diamonds and rubies. 
What could be more beautiful than the dim light on the misty white tablelands? The wind sighing and shifting the pebbles, stars dim in the haze and the singing brooks. And then, for one magic moment, the haze lifts and Cassiopeia shines from a well of intense blue. Grossmorn is touched by a wisp of mist and the distant hills are black against the lucent sky. And then a full, full moon, a smooth sea, the pebbles rolling softly, the red and green of Stuart's boat, the utter peace of the black water reflecting the moon and the seaside lights. How sorry I feel for people huddled in cities, missing the glories of living near the sea in Newfoundland as winter approaches. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late El Emanuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening.